It's who we are in Him. Sorry about that. Mike's fault, last song. Please take your Bibles and, as I said, go to James chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 14 through 26. 14 through 26. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May God add a blessing to his word. Please be seated. This week, we return to our study and examination of James's letter to the dispersed tribes. We kind of took a little bit of a sabbatical over the holiday season, preaching sermons on the Advent themes, but then we also had Missions Week earlier than any other time, and uh, of course, our district superintendent, Jonathan Wiggins, was here, uh, and so we've... We kind of took a sabbatical from James, but now we have returned and we find ourselves faced with some of the most controversial sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. The reason for this controversy is because it appears on the surface that James contradicts Paul's teaching that we find in Ephesians 2.8 and Romans 3.28 and also in Galatians as it relates to salvation by faith alone. So when we compare them to the verses we just read, specifically verses 14 and verses 24, on the surface we could say there's a contradiction. Now this is not something new. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, thought James to be a heretic. Didn't believe James should have even been allowed to be in the canonized Bible because of the alleged contradiction that he perceived James to have within these verses. And so does James contradict Paul? 
Well, we get our answers if we examine closely by way of context and sound hermeneutical examination, which is basically the interpretation of Scripture. And whenever you read Scripture in your daily devotions at home, you're studying, you have to read it in context to understand exactly what is being said. And you can see the elements of context up there on the screen. And for some, there's more than that. And when you examine James, verse 14 and verse 24, in relationship to what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2.8 and Romans 3.28, when you actually do compare them in context, they don't contradict each other. They actually complement each other. Additionally, if you view what Paul teaches and what James teaches through the lens of sanctification, where we know it to be positional, progressive, and ultimately glorification as the phases of sanctification, you will see that Paul occupies the space of justification or positional sanctification, and James occupies the space of progressive sanctification. So there's really no real contradiction. To put it simply, because we just don't have time to dive into this on a theological examination, but just to put it simply, in relationship to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7, verse 17, when he's talking about a tree that bears fruit, think of it in these terms. Paul speaks to the roots of our salvation, whereas James speaks to the fruit of our salvation. Now, we simply, again, don't have time to fully examine the connections between Paul and James' teaching in relationship to sanctification because that's an entirely different sermon, probably a series of sermons with different theses and different propositions. But I think our brief overlook that I just gave you, however, affords us the ability to examine James honestly and truthfully in a complementary fashion without being theologically conflicted. And so with our focus back on our text, we see that James is addressing what? He's addressing faith. He's addressing the faith of his readers. And he's doing so in a very confrontational way. A very direct way. A very challenging way. And understand, James is to be viewed, his letter is to be viewed as a more practical letter than a necessarily a theological letter. And as a result, we see 59 imperatives, those commandments that we are to be doing. And it seems like he challenges us in each and every text with one of those imperatives. And these scriptures here this morning are no different. And the challenge James gives us this morning is examining our faith to ensure that it's genuine. That it's genuine. To ensure that it's real. To ensure that it's based on Christ alone and nothing else. But that there also is evidence of it in your life as proof of your faith. And this is nothing new. This is not a, a new enterprise that James is entering in his letter. In fact, 
If you look at Paul's writing, specifically in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, we get a very direct challenge from Paul when he writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. It's very difficult at times as a pastor, as a preacher, to teach difficult texts that I know challenge. But I'm glad they do. I'm glad they do because it makes us examine ourselves as to whom we really follow and to refine, if necessary, an inadequate faith that we may possess. So this morning, we'll do just that. So let's look directly at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Direct question. But it's also a rhetorical question, having expressed an imperative of a genuine faith. In fact, all throughout the first couple of chapters of James, James is always talking to us about what? being active in our faith, to have a genuine faith, that that faith needs to what? Be under trial, under testing, to produce. He says that we are to be doers of the word. We're to control our tongues. We are to care for orphans and widows. We are to show no partiality within the body of Christ. And that we are to be loving with one another, forgiving one another. That's just in the first couple of chapters. And all of that demonstrates a genuine faith that we are to have in Christ. So now he brings us to a deeper examination of our faith through this rhetorical question. Now when we look at verse 14, there's three words that pop. There's three words that I want to draw your attention to. Maybe you've already identified those three words. And the first one is the word says. James is making a distinction by using that word. He didn't say, if someone has faith. He's saying, if someone says they have faith. And that's an important distinction. I've met numerous people who say they have faith in Christ, and yet their lives don't reflect it. They say they believe, but there's no evidence. They do not place a priority on prayer. They do not place a priority on reading God's Word, growing in the wisdom and knowledge and understanding and maturity of Christ, and adding to their faith. They don't attend church. In fact, some of them might even say, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I'd like to have a conversation with those types of people. They don't use the gifts God has given them. And you can see them in them. But they don't use it for a service. They don't have a priority of sharing the gospel or live a life of holiness. There's no fruit. There's no fruit. 
And yet James is saying that a genuine faith will show itself by what? Works. Now, what does that word mean? That's the second word that pops. Now, your version might say deeds. And the words here mean works, or the word deeds here means to do deeds, doing, labor, and work. Not as religious works that you feel lend to salvation, as some believe. Like for me, growing up, it was sacraments. But those actions that come from a genuine faith and changed heart of a professed believer that is lived out in the lives as a reflection of the life that they have in Christ. That's what works is. That's what deeds is. It's not activity. It's evidence of faith. That is motivated motivated by a changed heart. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16, like I said earlier, you're going to know them by their fruit. What kind of fruit do they produce? Another word that pops in this verse is that. I know, you probably wouldn't look at that, but it's very important now that in the King James Version, I don't believe that is there. And I think in the NIV, it says, such faith. And of course, the ESV says, that faith. Now, some would say the original language doesn't have such and that, but because James is inferring to a faith in which someone professes, they have. The translators felt it was important to make a distinction of what kind of faith they're talking about. and the fact that it's a self-professing faith that has no works to back it up. Listen, sincere faith in Jesus Christ is transformational faith. Not only by the power of the Holy Spirit, but also by decree of God. Listen to 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us into His own glory and excellence. So it's not only that our faith is of a power that transforms our lives. It changes you. But it's meant to be lived out. Not simply possessed in a relative manner. My faith is my faith. Your faith is your faith. No. Don't push your faith on me. It's to be lived out. In the life that God has, what? Redeemed. Which should be you. Genuine faith changes who we are. It changes your priorities in life. Doesn't it? Changes our passion, changes what is truly important in our lives. It changes how we think, how we act, how we interact, how we react, and what we feel and what we do and how we do it. Our lives are no longer our own. Remember that. They were purchased with a price, and that price was the blood of Christ. 
for you are not your own. And the life that you now live is in Christ. And a genuine faith will show that. It will produce fruit in keeping with repentance and transformation. You know, I think it was Chuck Swindoll who once said that faith is like calories. You don't see them, but you see their effects. And so what is James saying in verse 14? If someone says they have faith, but there are no works reflecting it, can that faith save them? Meaning, does he have a genuine, living faith? And in verse 15, James furthers his point when he writes, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, and without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, what does it mean? What does James mean when he says dead in the context of these scriptures? Well, it comes from the word necros, which means destitute of life or without life. Now, when we look at the sentence structure, going back to that context, going back to the grammatical element of... of context, excuse me, in the structure of James in verse 14, it doesn't necessarily question whether the person has a true believing faith, but it questions whether it's living, whether it's active, whether it's operable, whether it's yielded to. And that's due to the given fact that they recognized the plight of the person and wished him well, but did nothing to aid him. Their intentions were good, but it wasn't followed by action. Now, it is also pointed out by one scholar that James is not necessarily charging this person with an inactive faith by way of antinomianism. Practice that word several times because I know there's like people in the audience that'll go, yeah, that's not the right word. Like, like I didn't go to, anyway, I didn't go to Texas Roadhouse. I went to Longhorn. So I just want to correct that from last week. But anyway, <laughs> some of you brought that up. But anyway, antinomianism, big long word, but what it was was a view at the time that by grace they are relieved of the complete law to include the moral law. That's not true. Yes, we're not under the law, but we weren't relieved from the moral law. No doubt James's audience heard Paul's teaching on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and therefore swung that pendulum from one end where they had an efficacy of works to justify their righteousness to all the way to the right where they say, I don't need to do anything else. And the reason why they did that is because they believed. They didn't purify their understanding of what works is. They still felt it was lent to parts of salvation. And that's not what James is saying. 
What James is saying is the person is not putting forth a moral effort in obedience in Christ, living out their faith. And so James is pointing out that true, genuine faith will be evidenced by good works. It will be evidenced by deeds, by virtue of Christ's living nature within us. And it requires that moral effort to do it. And we know that this is exactly what the Lord requires because Paul alludes to it in Ephesians when he writes this, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we, what? Should walk in them. Walk in them. Not just simply possess them. Not just simply receive them. But what? Walk in them. Evidentiary faith. I like how Calvin puts it. Calvin, the great reformer. If faith alone, it is faith alone that justifies. But faith that justifies can never be alone. And so James is saying by, by saying our faith must be evidenced by actions and not a dormant and inactive or a faith that believes that nothing else is required. I'm saved, sanctified, and now I'm sitting. You know, in the military, we use acronyms, right? We've got an acronym for everything. It's its own language. That's why when I was in the military and I was talking to people like Todd and others, they're like, what did you just say? Because I threw an acronym at him. Well, there's an acronym for this. It's the same acronym we use in the military. It's ROAD. Whether it's retired on active duty, it's resurrected on active duty. We're not living out our faith. Now, there are also some who interpret this segment of Scripture as people having a dead faith, meaning it's truly dead. There's no life in it. It's not inactive. There's no life of the Holy Spirit in the individual and that their profession of faith is nothing more than a cultural acknowledgement that they live in a Christian culture or a traditional one because they were raised in a church with their family in a Christian church. Therefore, I must be Christian. There's some scriptural support for this interpretation if you Compare it to what Matthew, read, Matthew wrote in Matthew 7, 21, where he says, not, every, not, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. A genuine faith will desire to do the will of the Father, even if it's not something you want to do. Why? Because you love him. You love them, and you know it's going to be good for you, but also because we're accountable to them. We're accountable to them. Now, as it relates to which interpretation is correct, let me just say that both are possible. One could have an inactive faith. One could have a just simply dead faith, because only God knows the heart of the person, and the faith they profess 
For I have seen people come to the Lord and yet not immediately yield their lives to the Lord for whatever reason. And yet later, by way of what we call in the CMA a crisis moment, yields their full life to the Holy Spirit in a qualitative way. That's what happened to me. Lord put me on my knees. Said enough is enough. He disciplined me. He loved me. He forgave me. He empowered me to live this life in Christ. In either case, the warning should be equally examined within the heart of the hearer. Is my faith inactive? Or is it dead? And so a profession of faith should always be evident by works and deeds in the life of the believer as a sign of true regeneration. Verse 18. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, here in James 18, James answers a perceived argument that he projects that he might receive, or maybe he already had in the church, and now he's going to address it. And here, he challenges a different kind of faith. He challenges an orthodox faith, or a religious faith. Meaning, faith is derived by what someone does in a religious setting. Versus being the true source of works in their life. It's the classic works versus faith argument. Some believe they are saved by virtue of religious works that they do. They go to church, they observe the sacraments, and as a result, their faith is in their religious works. Their security, their eternal security, is in what is programmed by a church. I grew up in a system where it was not faith alone. And I remember a conversation that I had with my dad on this subject, and I recall him telling me, as long as you go to church, and as long as you observe the sacraments, and you are a good person, how can God not accept that? It's a deceiving argument. Sure, this kind of orthodox faith Sure, this kind of religious faith can generate acts of kindness and goodwill towards others and even curb some sinful activity. But the source of this kind of faith is not in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what I was missing. It was caught up in observances and tradition. And you know, that's how works are. We feel good when we do works, don't we? And we should, if we keep them in the proper context. But our identity, our faith, should never be in them. It should always be in Christ. That's our true identity. That's our true validation. And so what James is saying here is strip away all that work. Strip away all that orthodox. What do you have? 
I have faith. Do you? You can take everything away from me. This morning I seen a pink slip in my box. I told Faith, I said, it's either a message or you guys are sending me packing. You can strip everything away. Where's my faith? Where's my faith? But don't think that this self-deception can happen only in some other church that believes in sacramental elements and tradition as part of salvation. It can happen in the evangelical setting, too. I remember a story of a man who was really involved in his church, served in his church, served on the board, handled the money of the church, was very active, regular attender, and something happened in the church, and the church dissolved. And as my understanding, as I recall the story, the man never darkened the door again until his funeral. That's sad. This man's faith may have been in what he did as a means to justify to himself he was saved. I'm not God. I don't judge the heart. But going through a church breakup, going through a dissolving of a church, going through a difficult situation as there's more elements to that story I'm not going to share, shipwrecked his faith. That's why we need to test ourselves. God, if you strip everything away, do I still believe? Listen to Isaiah 29, 13. Because this people draw near with, my, with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Salvation is not faith plus works. Salvation is faith plus works equals evidence of salvation. Works flow from faith. Faith does not flow from works. And it's important that we understand that. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I love this verse. I really do. As James walks through all of the possible counter-arguments to his question in verse 14, he now disarms those who possess a mere, here we are, introduced to a third kind of faith, intellectual belief. An intellectual belief. And that they are saved because they simply believe in the principal doctrines of the Christian faith. They believe in God. They believe in Jesus. They can even tell you the story of Jesus because they go to Christmas services and Easter services. Or maybe they remember some of the teachings they received from Sunday school class and lessons they heard years ago. Darla and I were having uh, dinner last night at Longhorns, and while we were at Longhorns, um, I said, I bet you I can go to any table in this restaurant, and they, and they will say they believe in God, they know who Jesus is, they know that He came, that He ministered, he was, he was wrongfully accused, He was crucified on the cross, and on the third day He rose again, and that's why I go to Easter service. 
an intellectual belief. And you know what James says to that? So what? My sister would say this to me all the time. Big whoop. I don't know what that means. I mean, I know what it means, but I don't know what word she's shortening. Maybe it's big whoopee? I don't know. Big whoop. So what? Big deal. You believe. Even the demons believe and shudder. And shudder. And so therefore he destroys their position, stating that their professed beliefs is actually weaker than the demons believe. The demons believe. Now some, there's one writer of a book that I read on this, and, and he says he calls it demon faith. I have a problem with that term, demon faith, or demonic faith. I don't have a problem with demonic belief in relationship to the fact that they know who Christ is. But demonic faith, because faith to me has hope and trust in it. That's why I don't like that term. But, but listen, the demons not only know who Jesus is, but they believe in His power, His deity, and His authority. They believe. They believe more convincingly than some people that I know who has a professed faith in Christ. Recall the story of the demon-possessed man named Legion? Remember that? They crossed over the lake and they got there. Boom, there's Legion. What did the demon say to Jesus when he approached him? Do you remember in Mark chapter 5, verse 7? He says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? That's what a demon said. You think they recognize who he is? <laughs> Absolutely. They believed. They recognize who Jesus is and its association with the Father. And later when they requested to be cast into a herd of swine, recognizes power and authority and judgment. They knew their time was over at some point. And they would rather be cast into a herd of swine until that day of final judgment where they're cast into the abyss. They knew it was coming. They knew they lost. They recognize who Jesus was. And so the demons themselves have a deeper belief and understanding of who Jesus is than those who have a mere intellectual belief in the fact that they possess something that the intellectual believer doesn't. They possess an emotion with that belief. You can hear it in the cry of the demons. And they also had fear. Fear of judgment. Now that fear is removed from those who place a genuine faith in Christ. But there's still accountability. There's still a fear of reverence. And for those that have an intellectual belief, they don't necessarily possess those qualities. A person with an intellectual belief is one who believes in the basic tenets of the Christian faith but still lives their life the way they want to. They don't darken the door of churches. They don't study the Bible. They, what they think they have is sufficient and enough, and they're good. And it's deceptive. It's deceptive. And you know what? You know where I'm going to place the blame on that? The church. The church. 
There's a lot of churches that won't preach this. And I'm not, I'm not bragging. Don't take it that way. I've been to other churches. They don't challenge you. They don't make you examine yourself. To have somebody sit and believe that by basically believing in the tenets of the Christian faith that they're saved and there's nothing else required is a fault of the church. And that church is you and me. You and me. Tim and I had a little conversation about that this week in relationship to when do we as brothers and sisters engage to prevent a brother and sister from being inactive in their faith, of committing a sin. It's the church. Now, there's a responsibility on the individual too. But where's the church? And so James, by way of verses 14 through 19, has revealed dead faith. He's revealed orthodox faith. He has revealed intellectual belief as not being equal to a genuine living faith and challenge us as to which faith we have. And for those who are on the fence, he continues to provide yet another proof text or example when he says, I know it's small font, but do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham your father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith has active and uh, along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. More proof of an active and genuine living faith. Now remember, he's speaking to Jewish believers in this letter. They know these characters. They know who he's talking about. I think some of them might have been taken aback by the fact that he's comparing Abraham and Rahab on equal terms. But he is. And so he reaches back into the Old Testament and he brings a proof text to understand what he's talking about in a New Testament era. Now on Wednesday, we examined this story in detail of Abraham and Isaac as it related to the testing of faith. And what we learned was is that Abraham's faith was so connected with his life that when he was called upon by God to take Isaac to a place of sacrifice, he believed God with a genuine faith and did not hesitate in obeying God. Read the text. He was told to take Isaac next morning, got up and went. He just got up and went. He was decisive in his obedience and fully believed and relied upon the promise that God had spoken to him earlier as it related to Isaac. Remember the promise from God to Abraham? We find it in Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, where God promises that Sarah will bear a son and his name will be Isaac and God will establish his everlasting covenant with him and Isaac's offspring. And Isaac's offspring. See the little nuggets you get when you do a little study? This was the promise that Abraham received and believed that was counted to him as righteous. And so when we read the story of Abraham, goes to sacrifice Isaac in chapter 22, we see evidence of this when Abraham in verse 5 says to the young men that accompanied them, sorry for the cartoon, couldn't find a better picture, but anyway, 
He says to the two young men that accompanied them, he says, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship. And what did he say? And, I will, and we will come to you again. Abraham believed in the promise he received from God as it related to Isaac, even though now God is asking him to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham didn't know how he was going to do it, didn't know what he was going to do, but he believed in him. He believed that God cannot fulfill a promise. And so he went all the way up to the point where he was about to sacrifice Isaac. And he was stopped by the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Don't do it, Isaac, for now I know that you fear God. And if that wasn't enough, James then uses Rahab to further his argument, who is a complete opposite of Abraham, the patriarch, right? That's how Jews would identify themselves, our father Abraham. But here, she's a prostitute. She's a non-Jew. And yet she had faith and acted in that faith to help the Jewish spies because she believed in their God and it too was counted to her as righteousness. Praise the Lord. So James uses two extremes to justify his argument. And that, yes, if we believe in grace alone, we do believe in grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, but faith will and needs to accompany works and deeds as evidence of that genuine living Verse 26, the final verse. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is James's final argument and challenge. Does our faith have works? Is it an enduring faith? Is it a living faith? That's really the question, isn't it? How's our faith? Is it dead faith that has not progressed in maturity since conversion? Or do you have faith at all? And it's just merely a profession of faith on how you were raised? Is it merely a religious faith where it's nothing more than a, a practice of religious obligations and observances? Is it a mere intellectual faith where you believe in all the tenets of the faith? but is not revealed in a progressively sanctifying Holy Spirit empowerment of transformation? Or do you possess a genuine faith, a living faith that is evidenced by way of righteous works and deeds and obedience in Christ that is lived out in a transforming life? That's what we it's not about doing. It's about possessing. It's about trusting. It's about obedience. It's about doing the things that God 
through Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is calling us to do. It's my prayer that we walk in this genuine faith and we share this genuine faith with those that may not have that same faith. But the challenge is clear and it's a hard challenge. We need to examine the faith that we do have. Maybe it needs to be resurrected, refined. But at the end of the day, it needs to be genuine and real with signs of evidence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's tough at times, Lord, but that's good. It makes us examine. And Father, I just pray right now that you would just minister further these scriptures in our heart, that they would stir in our heart, that we would meditate on them, and that we would ask those tough questions, and that we would come to you in prayer, desiring a genuine faith, and if we are in a genuine faith, to be empowered with more so that we can live this life and witness to those who are lost. Oh, Lord, thank you for faith. Thank you, Father, that you saved us. Oh, may we walk in it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.